Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerd App Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except sometimes the author stops by. We did it. We made it to an entire new year, and our pick for January 2023 is Kevin Wilson's newest novel, Now Is Not the Time to Panic. It's about teenage Frankie, a misfit girl living in Tennessee, and the very weird and amazing summer that she can't let go of. She meets Zeke, a fellow weirdo, and they make an enigmatic poster that upturns her small town and eventually the world. In Kevin's words, this is a book about friendship, about art, about memory, and about what it means to hold on to the person who we were, even as we become someone else. That's all I'm going to say for now, since this is a spoiler-free conversation. Kevin, welcome to Nerdette. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So I mentioned that this is sort of a book about like a teenage girl and like kind of that one summer that changed her life, but this is extremely not your typical that one summer kind of novel, if you know what I mean. Um, Can you talk a little bit about just sort of like, I don't know, you're doing so much here with the power of nostalgia and the fraughtness of being a teenager and the pain and delight of figuring out how to be weird. It's just, it's just so beautiful. Oh, thank you. I think, you know, I think a lot of this is just, I'm 44 and Mm -hmm. I have my own kids now who are 14 and 10 Mm. and it feels like as much as I live in the present with them um, because their experiences are such that they keep pulling me back into the past. Mm. So, uh, and we live in this, they're growing up in the same County I lived in. So you get an even weirder kind of blend of time, but they're in the same movie theater I grew up in and you get these weird, strange moments where even though you're in the moment, you're pulled back to the past and they're kind of overlaid. And I just kind of wanted to write about that sensation of how you measure the life that you're living and trying to find that thread that connects you to the past. It's just kind Mm -hmm. of a human condition, I think, to go, how did I get from here to here? Totally. Well, and I think the perspective in this book is done so beautifully that way, too, because it's definitely written from the point of view of adult Frankie looking back. You're never entirely just in Frankie's teenage world because that's not what it's about. It is about that thread that that brings you back to it. Yeah. I mean, I think the the other thing is just like because I am who I am and and I gravitate to characters who are kind of like stunted in some ways. Mm -hmm. So the voice sometimes (laughs) sounds a little like a teenager, but she's an adult. I mean, she's, she has the way of that life that she's lived uh, influencing those memories. Yeah. So this book revolves around a poster that Frankie and her friend Zeke create. They duplicate, they post it around town. And the phrase on the poster is the edge. Well, will you say it? Will you tell us what it is? Yeah, sure. Uh, the edge is a shanty town filled with gold seekers. We are fugitives, and the law is skinny with hunger for us. 
Oh, it's so gorgeous. So I want to talk about the origin of that phrase later, but just to talk about the book a little bit first. So people who come across the poster kind of make their own meaning out of it, which I think you definitely can do with that phrase. Um, There are kind of some echoes of like satanic panic that happens. The phrase is used in social uprisings, SNL skits, Pulitzer Prize winning reporting. And for her entire life, Frankie keeps her involvement to it a secret. And I don't know. It's so interesting thinking about it because I feel like there's such an irony to that. The idea that, you know, here she is. It's this obviously it changes the world, but it also changes her as a person so intensely. And yet it's something that she can never actually tell anybody about. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, too. I mean, you know, I I write a lot about just like, what does it mean to make art? Like, what are Mm. the limits of it and what can it do? Mm -hmm. And in this book, like, yeah, that line, it opens up and and just like, God, it disperses into the world in such an unexpected way. Mm. And Frankie certainly feels that. I mean, she feels the pride of ownership. But in some ways, I think it's it's a secret and she keeps it a secret. And partly I think it's because there's no way that she could explain to many people how mm. no matter how huge it was in the world, it was more important to her personally, that just mm. secret meaning Uh, reverberates in ways beyond that. So yeah, I think that's the strange thing is art can go out and it can reach people, but then there's the internal of the maker and how Mm. it transforms them. I have heard a lot of authors talk about the idea that they really like to think of their books as sort of asking questions as opposed to answering them. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting idea, especially with this one, because of what you're talking about, especially the idea of, you know, the fact that an artist really can't have any control over how other people perceive their art. And it's obviously a big theme of the book. I was curious how you're resonating with that these days, I guess. Oh, man. Well, I mean, the thing is, like, I can't imagine writing a book thinking you have the answer. Uh, Good Lord. (laughs) Like, why would you... Why would you even write it? You should Sounds keep like that shit to yourself. Book. Yeah, like if I had the answers, I wouldn't be telling anybody. Um, uh, so like for me, like the only reason that I write is because I'm trying to figure something out. Like I'm writing mm-hmm. my way towards some kind of answer, some kind of understanding, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's why I started writing in the first place was like I was lonely. I was anxious. I didn't understand the world. And I thought, well, if I can write a narrative, maybe I can use that narrative to get me through the life that I'm actually living. So Mm. this book was the same way. Like I'm trying to think about what does it mean to live a life and look back in the past and feel it resonate and try to move forward. And I was like, well, let's write this book and see. And, and, you know, you're looking for that little sliver of light that you can walk through at the end of the book. Uh, Mm. And I can't, you know, I can't know if anybody else is going to feel that. So I better feel it uh, or else what's the point? Hmm. And you do feel it with this book then? I think so. I mean, you know, I wrote my <laughs> I wrote my way towards something where I was like, well, I'm still here and the book's yeah. here. So I feel like I succeeded uh, huh. for me in that respect. Yeah. That's really cool. So this book is told from the point of view of a young woman. Many of your books are. You've talked about how you write from another gender as sort of a way to like obscure yourself as the writer. I think that's a really interesting one because, you know, it's part of a much bigger conversation that I've seen definitely happening more recently around, you know, questions of appropriation and who should be able to tell whose stories. 
and you do such a beautiful job of it. I wonder kind of what your thought process is like in terms of making sure that you're doing that in like a respectful and honest way. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like, (laughs) so the first thing is, why do I gravitate towards a woman's voice in so many of the books that I write? And like, Mm -hmm. you know, so I got to ask myself, like, well, why am I doing that? Like, what's the point? What am I what am I going to get out of that? How am I going to do it right? And there's this thing, it's like, I think that, you know, you should be able to write outside of yourself. But you should also be prepared when somebody (laughs) tells you that you got it wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you should be able to kind of like process that. So for me, um, for whatever complicated reasons, like, yes, I like to obscure my own self within the character, but like, there's so many other ways I could do that. Mm. Um, so weirdly, for whatever reason, I, uh, because of just my own personal identity, like I feel comfortable inside the voice of a woman. Uh, it resonates for me, but, uh, you can't just be like, well, it feels right to me. So I hope the reader <laughs> so will, let, let, yeah, so deal with it. <laughs> And also, like, I've had lots of people say for for a lot of my books, like, wow, can't believe a guy wrote this. And that's mm-hmm. lovely. And it resonates. But I've also had people say, you can tell a dude wrote this. And like, <laughs> both of those are correct. Like, I'm sure. not I, I can't control every single person. So if you can't control every single person's response and you can't get it exactly right. What I try to do is I'm like, well, what's the desire of this character? Who are they? And what I hope is that if I can embody that character in a way that the audience or the reader believes me, then they will give me, if I do it right and I do Mm -hmm. it honestly and I do it openly, they'll give me the benefit of the doubt if I slip up. Right. And to me, that's what I look for with a writer who, or an artist, anyone that creates outside of their own identity. I'm looking for enough there that I can say, even if there's something that doesn't quite resonate, it's okay because I'm seeing so much else on the page that's working. Yeah, And that's all you can ask for. For, Well, I think to your point, too, I mean, I do think another important piece of that is being willing to be accountable and, you know, to take that criticism well when it does come and is fair, you know? Yeah, of course. Like, I don't know. I writing is a lonely existence in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And so if anyone takes the time to respond or to critique your work, like, obviously, like, it super bums me out if people are like, this book sucks. Like, I'm not going to be like, ah, what a great growing experience for me as a writer. But like, if someone takes the time to do it, um, then that's, if I'm going to write for the rest of my life, then I want to take those moments in and figure out how to make it work and and interrogate the work that I make and think about it when I make the next thing. So yeah, I I don't mind that stuff. And also like, I'm getting what I need out of the writing of it. Like I wrote the book and it was transformative for me in some way. Mm -hmm. So I can't control the thing that comes after that. And I just have to respond to it and accept it and try to work through it. That's that's the weird engagement of art. You got to love it enough that you're willing to engage with it when someone thinks you've got it wrong. Mm. So what does that mean? Like you talk about how so much of it for you is the creation of it. Would you be okay with writing a book that nobody read or does that kind of defeat the purpose, too? Yeah, I've written I've written books that nobody's read or the two people that read it said it sucked. And so I was like, well, OK, uh, I got something out of that. Uh, I wish it had gone further. I mean, yeah. What? So I think this is just the strange thing about writing is that for me, it's that sometimes the world of the story that I'm living in is um, 
it's it's good for me. It's it's safe for me, and it helps me actually navigate the real world. So I need that. I need to go inside that imaginary space so that I can figure out what I'm going to do. But you know, then there's that weird moment where you're like, oh, this has resonated for me. It means something to me. What would happen if I if I let this touch the open air? Like, what do I want from that? And I think back to what I want from books, especially when I was this lonely kid in the deep south in a rural space was I, I saw it as like a signal that goes out. You know, you read the book and you're like, oh, this person sees something and it resonates with me. And I felt like even though I'd never meet that writer, maybe I felt some kinship with them. I felt connected to them and it made the world less scary. And it's not like I'm like, oh, I'm doing a service for the world. But when I when I put the book out, what I'm hoping is that maybe there's somebody that sees it and they're like, oh, yeah, this too. I felt this. This I know this. Yeah. And and I don't know. I love that moment, even if it's secret. I love the idea that it could happen. So you mentioned growing up in Tennessee, your books are set there, too. Um, You live there now. It's a really interesting state, I think, partly because it's one that you know, a lot of people, especially in bigger cities, maybe just don't think about that much. What's important to you about it as a setting? Well, I mean, so other than I lived, I worked in the gender studies program at Harvard for two years in Cambridge. I went Mm. to grad school in Florida for two years. Other than that, I've lived my whole life basically in this county, uh, Franklin Mm. County in Tennessee. And um, so just Partly it's just out of laziness, which is just like when I imagine a town, it's my town. And I don't really want to research like the Midwest. You know, I'm assuming there's a lot of similarities, but like I don't have time for that. So I just think, okay, this is the place. When I imagine the streets, they're the streets I walked. And it just makes Mm -hmm. it easier for me to let those characters move through that space. But the other reason is just like... I write a lot. My stories are all set in the South and I'm definitely like Southern. I mean, you can hear it in my Mm -hmm. voice and there's lots of aspects of the place where I grew up. Um, But to my mind, uh, my wife's from Atlanta and her life, you know, she grew up in the city. Uh, Our, our Souths are very different. You know, they're not, they don't resonate in a lot of the same ways. I always think of myself as rural uh, more than Southern. Like what I, what I'm really interested in is rurality. And like when I was in Cambridge, I I would hike constantly in Maine and New Hampshire. And I was in Maine. Oh man. I was like, this feels like the South to me. And what it resonated was the rurality of like, okay, there's a distance between you and some of the things that you need. But that's what I love writing out of is, is there's a bit of isolation. Mm -hmm. And when there's isolation, you get weirdness. (laughs) <laughs> i grew up in fairbanks alaska which is extremely weird mm. so i totally oh get it in good and bad ways you know yeah i mean it is like you wish that you had access to like museums and music yeah. and all this stuff and yeah. so yeah that sucked when i was 16 but then yeah in the absence of that i had to be obsessive i had to make stuff i had to go find it and sometimes all i could find was the weirdest stuff that nobody liked but it was all i had <laughs> So I don't know. I'm shaped by where I grew up and my characters are shaped by where they grew up. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, So speaking of the weirdness, this book doesn't have any fantastical elements to it. But, you know, I think about nothing to see here. And, you know, you have these twins who catch fire when they get really upset. There's nothing like that in this one, but it still feels kind of magical to me. 
Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when I first started writing, because I loved magical realism and I loved Kelly Link and I loved George Saunders and St- Stephen Milhauser. Yeah. So I loved magic and weirdness. But like the older I've gotten, the more I'm like, I was always like, oh, you know, you're a normal person and the world is just so magical and strange. And then you get older and you're like, oh, man, the world is so boring and there's not much magic in it. But what's magical sometimes is the weirdness that people hold inside of themselves. So Mm -hmm. I get more interested in that now. And that's where I think the magic in this story kind of resonates from is that these two characters are so strange and they're so anxious about their strangeness that it makes everything kind of wavy. You know, the world they live in, it feels unreal. And and that's kind of now how I feel like I'm, I exist. It's like it's easier for a normal person to exist in Narnia, you know, than like <laughs> – some weird person to exist in the normal world you know that's that's harder yeah well i think too there's like the magic of meeting someone when your weirds overlap yeah exactly yeah for sure uh because you it's this thing you think is hidden and then for a brief moment you're like oh it's hidden but someone else has it too uh and it's just a great moment of being seen More with Kevin Wilson about now is not the time to panic in just a minute. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So I want to go back to that phrase. Um, I find it so evocative and comforting. I I don't know. I feel like I have a lot of really positive emotional reactions to it, and I'm not really sure why. And I would love to hear about about its origin story. It's a really it's a really beautiful story. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So I mean, so the big thing is, you know, and it's it's no secret. I I did not write this line. You know, it's it's in the book, but I didn't make it. Um, um, but so, uh, the summer after my freshman year of college at Vanderbilt University, uh, I was living in an apartment with my cousin, Brian, and we were working at this, uh, the Vanderbilt Medical Center. And, uh, for that summer, my cousin, Brian, who's about four years older than me, his, his best friend, Eric Haley was going to live with us. And after that summer, he was moving to LA to be an actor. He'd gone to NYU he gotten his MFA at Alabama in theater, and hmm. and Eric was just this uh, unbelievably charismatic and beautiful and talented person. And then he just appeared in our apartment, and I had access to him for the whole summer. And it was like mm-hmm. he had a camera. He showed me how to use editing equipment. We made little short films. He worked as a janitor, and so he would bring home like these weird film strip cameras he'd found at the school, and we would project them onto walls and. He was just one of the first people my own age who was like, you know, you can make stuff if you want. Like, you can be an artist. Like, there's nothing like, you know, that requires a ton. And that was the first time I really felt like, oh, people my age could maybe do this. So then the, 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 over that summer, I was working for the medical center. And my whole job, this was in uh, 97, 
my whole job was to take the universe, the medical center's policy and procedures manual, which was like 600 pages, and put it on uh, the computer to turn it to HTML, which I did not know how to do. <laughs> and so all day long, I would type in HTML the entire manual by hand. And it was, and no one knew what I was doing. And I got unbelievably bored. And I was like, no one's going to read this. And I just started making stuff up. So I would just write whole sentences hidden in the manual. And I would just, and it was all kind of post apocalyptic. There were lots of sharpened sticks, there were like little <laughs> weird things. And I was just writing little stories hidden inside this manual. And I told Eric I was doing that. And I was like, here's stuff that I've been writing. And he's like, well, why don't you use this? And he said that Edge is a shantytown filled with gold seekers. And his line was, we are the new fugitives and the law is skinny with hunger for us. Mm. And so I typed it into the policy and procedures manual under a a section called getting into print. (laughs) And I I have like obsessive tendencies and I have repetition in my head always. Mm. And uh, I have Tourette's. And so... Just the moment he said that line, I edited it down to we are fugitives instead. But um, I've said that line probably every day of my life for 20 years since. You know, Hmm. I say it all the time. Um, And it's become a kind of mantra for me. And it has no real meaning. So you have to imbue it with meaning. So whatever you you put into it is what you get out of it. And so Mm -hmm. for me, it was... The edge is a shantytown filled with gold seekers. I always said it like that. And it's here is this space, you know, and I'm anxious usually when I say stuff, when I repeat. And then there's that pause and I need that pause. And it's like, okay, there's the space. And then it says we are fugitives and the law is skinny with hunger for us. And when I say that part, what I feel is I'm anxious at the beginning. Uh, This this might all end for me, you know? And then I say, we are fugitives, Mm -hmm. and the law is skinny with hunger for us. I'm like, but they don't have me yet. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep going. And every time I say it, it propels me an extra few seconds into the future. And I used that line. And I used it in my first novel, Family Fang. Uh, And uh, I was like, I'm not done with it. After Nothing to See Here came out, I said on an interview that I was writing about this line that my friend Eric wrote. And then Eric got in touch with me. We'd fallen out of touch. We would go in and out of touch because he was in L.A. And he was like, yeah, cool. This sounds neat. And uh, (laughs) and then I was writing the book and uh, I was like pretty close to the end. And I got a call from Brian. He was like, Eric's dead. He died unexpectedly, Mm -hmm. just out of nowhere, uh, Mm -hmm. just died of kidney failure. And I was like, oh, God, you know, what do I, why am I, what am I going to do? Why am I writing this book? Um, and that was the moment for a brief moment where I was like, I think I'm done with this. I don't think I want to do it. Mm. And then just the the loveliness of fiction is like, this is not me. And it's not Eric. It's Frankie yeah. and it's Zeke. And I can write my way towards what I need. I can write this story in a way that um, it goes where I want it to go. And then the book came out, and the weirdness always was like, this is a line that Eric said to me, and I've said it in my head for 20 years, and it's a little secret. And then I started hearing people say it, and people have written to me with the posters, and there's something like really wild about it and really strange, and it doesn't feel like real life. But also, (laughs) like every time I hear someone else say it, I'm like, that's Eric. You know, that's Mm. Eric's voice, and it's really lovely. It's a way that... In this fiction, I can I can keep him in my mind in ways that are really helpful. 
Yeah, I love that. So, yeah, I mean, you say very clearly it's not about you. It's not about Eric. It's about Frankie and Zeke. But do you is it fair to say this is still the most personal novel you've written or is that kind of an equivocation when it comes to writing? I th- that's a good question. I think it is. I just think because that summer for Frankie and Zeke, yeah. uh, there's just so much of it that resonates with me in my own life. And uh, yeah, I think it is. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for writing such a great book and for talking with me about it. This was really a pleasure. Oh, it's such an incredible way to start off the year. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening along to that delightful conversation with Kevin. We would love to know what you think of Now Is Not the Time to Panic. Read the book. Let us know what you think. You can record yourself on your little smartphone and then email the file over to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. Do it by Monday, January 23rd, and you will probably be in this month's episode. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman. Our executive producer is Brendan Banasak. We will see you on Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.